Nobody likes to be interrupted. I don't know about you, but I personally don't like to be interrupted. Um, especially uh, Circuit Judge Daniel Rozak from Will County, Illinois. He doesn't like to be interrupted. In August of 2009, Clifton Williams was attending the hearing of his cousin in a Joliet uh, uh, courtroom. His cousin pled guilty to a felony drug charge. And when Judge Rozak delivered a sentence of two years probation, Mr. Williams let loose with this <sighs> loud yawn. Judge Rozak noticed uh, and so later describing the incident by saying that Williams raised his hand while at the same time making a loud yawning sound. And so the judge decided that that was a disrespectful interruption of the court. <laughs> and he sentenced Williams to six months in jail, the maximum penalty for contempt of court without a jury trial. He didn't like to be interrupted. How do you react when you're interrupted. Um, <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Let's say you're in a sanctuary preaching. You know, uh, what, do you, what do you do? <laughs> I already told you I don't like being interrupted. But uh, let's say you're on a phone and suddenly, uh, you know, an important phone call, suddenly one of your children, uh, you know, they come up and start tugging, you know, on your sleeve, wanting to ask a, a question. Or you're watching, you know, a, a significant playoff uh, football game, you know, one that you've really got a strong interest in when the doorbell suddenly rings and someone is asking you to sign a local petition. Or maybe you're driving around trying to get all your errands done when the traffic suddenly stops and you are stuck interrupting all of your plans for that day. What do you do when you're interrupted? Scripture's full of stories of God interrupting people. Do you realize that? God interrupted Abraham. His comfortable life there in Haran uh, and directed him to go into the land of Canaan. There was Moses, of course, living his uh, life peacefully out there in the desert as a, as a shepherd when he was interrupted by God in that burning bush. Of course, there was Mary. <laughs> um, her life and her, her plans were um, suddenly interrupted by God when his angel told her that she would become the mother of Jesus, God's own son. This morning, I want to introduce you to two brothers who were interrupted by Jesus. We meet them in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But before we get to them uh, and, and the interruption, we need to set the stage. So I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 1. Mark 1, we're going to start by looking at verse 14 and 15. Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In, in Mark's gospel here, um, these are Jesus's very first public words, okay? 
Now, I find it very interesting um, that Jesus' good news, it follows the bad news of John the Baptist being arrested. See, John the Baptist, um, his mission was to be uh, the announcement that the anointed one was coming. And now that the announcements are over, it's now time for the main event. And so Jesus steps onto the stage um, and goes into Galilee, proclaiming um, the gospel of God and saying that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. In other words, he's saying that the time that they have been waiting for has, has come. Um, this better world, this, this new world, this, this world in which God's goodness and his, his mercy rules and reigns over all people and all things, this, this world that you have been waiting for, he's saying to them, this world that you have been longing for, this world that you've been praying for, it's now here. The kingdom of God has arrived. Biblical scholars and theologians had devoted entire lifetimes. I mean, there's volumes of books written focusing on the kingdom of God, trying to understand what it is and what it looks like. The concept, I think, is a little harder for us to understand today, at least here in the United States, than it was in Jesus' day. Because, listen, I mean... Frankly, we, we don't have a king, and we don't live in a time of a, of a kingdom. Now, in the first century, the king was the ultimate authority. And there was a, a lot of kings. Um, there were kings, and then there were emperors. Um, Caesar had control over an entire empire, right? Um, there were kings who controlled uh, various regions, and they reported to the emperor. Had Jesus lived in a, a different place in the uh, Roman Empire, he might, have, he might have talked about God as the emperor and, and would have talked about the empire of God. But he talks about the kingdom of God. So when the first century Jews heard that phrase, the kingdom of God, what they thought about, they thought about a, a political uh, kingdom, one that would be centered there in Jerusalem. But see, when we hear the phrase, I think uh, more oftentimes we hear that phrase, kingdom of God, we, we tend to think of heaven, don't we? We tend to think of heaven. And, and I want to suggest this morning that both of us are wrong, those first century Jews and us. See, the kingdom of, of God is not a, a time or a place. The kingdom of God is a life. It's a life lived under the rule of God. When Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had come near, he was announcing that there was a new and, and better life that was available. Not in some distant place or, or some future time, but it was here and now. That, of course, <laughs> was good news. But to experience the kingdom uh, life, you have to do two things, Jesus says. You have to repent and believe. 
That word repent means um, to change one's mind, to change your life. It means to to turn around, uh, to turn away from one thing and turn towards another thing. But you say, well, but turn towards what? See, usually when we hear that uh, word repent, uh, we think of turning from our sins, right? Turning from those wrong attitudes, uh, and stop doing and using those wrong words, uh, uh, put an end to, to doing those wrong deeds. But I, I think that's too narrow of a definition. Because you notice here that Jesus doesn't say, um, repent from your sins. He says, just repent. I mean, certainly it's appropriate for us to repent of our sins, um, But to repent includes more than that. Turning from, uh, you know, wrong attitudes, that's good. (laughs) But see, to repent is broader than that. It includes turning away from one's own path and, and turn towards the path of Christ. To repent means to stop pretending as if, as if your life is all about you and, and to start now living under God's rule. It means to trade in your old way of life and uh, for God's new way of life. And then Jesus says, believe. Uh, believe in the gospel. To experience this kingdom life, you have to believe in the, the, the good news that such a life is possible and that it's available to you. To believe here <laughs> means I got to tell you, it means more than just an intellectual assent. Um, um, it means more than just nodding your head in, in agreement. It means to act on something, to enter into it. I, I want to illustrate this um, using a, an illustration by Todd Hunter out of his book, Christianity Beyond Belief. I think it's, it's, it's very useful. He says this, um, let's say you're afraid of flying. You're not sure why, but you've never been able to get on a plane. But you're intrigued with the idea of flying, so you decide to do some investigation. You talk to some of your friends who fly and ask them to describe their experience. You do some reading, and you learn that flying, well, it's one of the safest ways to travel. You join a fear of flying group where you can discuss your fears, and you can ask questions and get them answered. And eventually, you come to the place where you believe that flying is safe and efficient way to travel. So you buy yourself a ticket. You head to the airport. You walk through the gate, down the jetway. But just as you're about to step into the plane, standing there in that little alcove, you notice the nuts and bolts (laughs) that hold that plane together. You see a mechanic Um, you know, down below, uh, fixing something. Maybe you've recently read about a door flying open on a jet one time, uh, mid-flight. And all of this scares you, you know? You look at that little gap between, between the jetway and the plane, and you realize, you realize that if you step over that gap, you know what? You're entering into a new reality. And at the last minute, you refuse to go. (laughs) I can't do it, you say. I won't do it. 
Now, let me ask you, do you really believe that it's safe to fly? You may understand that it's safe to fly. You may agree that your life would be a lot happier if you could fly. But until you're prepared to enter into the airplane, you really don't believe in flying. In the same way, listen, you haven't really believed the good news of God until you've entered into that reality, until you've actually invited him to rule your life. So this morning, before we go any further in, in this message, I, I need to ask if you believe the good news. I'm not asking if you understand the good news. I'm not asking if you agree with the good news or if you, you would like to experience you know, the good news of the kingdom of God. I'm asking if you have entered into the experience and surrendered to his rule in your life. Now, let me tell you, if you're not there yet, <laughs> it's okay. Keep checking it out. Keep asking questions. It might take some time before you're ready to make a step like that. I look forward to one day celebrating with you that you've taken that step of belief. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, something new is happening. God is establishing his rule in the hearts of people. Turn away from your old way of living and enter into this new way, into the way of the kingdom of God. But what does that way look like? Um... What does it mean to trade my old life for a kingdom life? Um, and that brings us to these two brothers uh, who experienced this life-changing interruption um, here in chapter 1 of Mark. Look with me in the next three verses, 16 through 18. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mark introduces us to these two brothers, Simon and uh, Andrew. Now besides telling us that they were fishermen, Mark really doesn't <laughs> tell us much more ab about them. But if you go to uh, John's gospel, you'll discover that these uh, two disciples, uh, they had been disciples of John the Baptist at one point. And so most likely, most certainly, they had heard about Jesus, and my guess is they probably had also listened to Jesus teach a time or, or two. So chances are, um, you know, they had known about Jesus. But Mark here, in his writing style, it's very interesting, Mark in his writing style, he, he wants us to feel the, 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 the drama of them being suddenly interrupted by, by Jesus and the sudden impact that this has on their lives. <laughs> now, we have to remember that fishing uh, was a respectable business uh, in first century Galilee. And it was profitable. 
because there was plenty of, of, of fish that were there in the lake, and there was also uh, plenty of people that, that uh, needed to be fed. So chances are, Simon and Andrew, chances are they made a decent living. And then Jesus suddenly comes along, and he interrupts their lives and their careers with this surprising invitation. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, it's surprising for several reasons. The first reason is because it was highly unusual for a rabbi to call disciples. See, typically, it was the other way around. Typically, if you wanted to study under a specific rabbi, you would approach that teacher, that rabbi, and you would ask if you could be one of their disciples. But here, Jesus, it happens exactly the opposite. Jesus comes looking for them and invites them to follow him. A second surprise I want you to see is that he says, come, follow me. He doesn't say, come, study the Torah with me. I mean, each rabbi of that day, you have to understand they had their distinctive approach uh, to interpreting and applying the, the scriptures. And their students or their disciples would then come alongside them and would learn their approach. But Jesus here makes it personal, doesn't he? He says, follow me. Don't, don't follow my way of interpreting scripture. No, you follow my way of living. So the first thing Jesus does is he invites these two brothers into a personal relationship with him. He invites them to be with him, to learn from him, to become like him. Now, you got to think there must have been something awfully compelling about Jesus, don't you? I mean, something about his way of living that that had captured these brothers, their imagination, because we're told that they left their nets and they followed him. For many of us, my guess is that's the way our, our Christian life began. We were minding our own business, making our way in the world, when Jesus came along and he interrupted our lives. Maybe we heard about him in church, or maybe a, a friend uh, told us about him, but somewhere along the line, we were struck by him and his, his life and his teaching. Maybe, maybe it happened suddenly for you, or, or maybe for you, maybe it happened over a length of time, gradually. But we came to the place where we said, I have to follow Jesus, and since then, your life has been about knowing Jesus better and better and becoming more and more like him. And I got to tell you, that's great. That's a good start. But it's only a start. And this brings us to the third surprise in this interruption by Jesus. And that is, he didn't just stop with the invitation, follow me. No, he goes on and says, follow me and I will make you Fishers of men, fishers of people. Now listen, that wasn't just a clever wordplay by Jesus. He was making a point when he, when he said that, when he gave that invitation. He was making a direct connection between uh, 
the life they had been living and the life that he was calling them to. He was calling them to take this business that they knew so well and turn it into a purposeful life. Do you remember that word repent, you know, back up in verse 15? What would Jesus be asking these brothers to repent of? I mean, they're not criminals. I mean, they weren't evil people. They they weren't doing anything necessarily wrong. They were just running a business. But what Jesus offered them was a mission. I mean, they were making a living. But Jesus wanted them to join him in making a difference. See, Jesus had something bigger in in mind for these two brothers. He wasn't asking them just to, to follow him. He was inviting them to join him in his work, to turn uh, from working for themselves to going out and into the world and, and to serve people in his name. Okay, let me personalize this a little bit. If Jesus were to come <laughs> walking into your life this week, if he were to interrupt you at work tomorrow or on your way to school or at home, <laughs> And tell you to repent. What might he be asking you to repent of? Now maybe there's some sin in your life. Maybe uh, there's some habit or behavior that's wrong. And and, and keeps getting in the way of um, life you were meant to live. If that's the case, then repentance starts with uh, turning away from that. But maybe your life is okay. Maybe you're doing pretty well in in following Jesus Christ. But see, you're following him for your your own sake, to serve your own interests rather than the interests of others. You haven't joined him in his work in this world. And if that's the case, then what Jesus wants you to repent of is not um, not a life that's wrong, but rather a life that's too small. Listen to what commentator David Garland writes about this passage. He writes this, The call and response of these fishermen should shatter our comfortable world of middle-class discipleship. Disciples are not simply those who fill pews at worship, attend an occasional Bible study, and offer to help out in the work of the church now and then. When one is hooked by Jesus, one's whole life and purpose are transformed. That's what it means to repent and believe the good news. It means to follow Jesus into a new way of life, to radically reorient your life around Jesus and his work in this world. Jesus comes to you and he interrupts your life and he says, I want you to be part of what I'm doing. There's a wrecked and and weary world out there, and I'm bringing a new world, God's kingdom. Now, are you in? Are you in? (laughs) The second century, there was a 
great letter called the letter to Digenes, um, which shows some, uh, how some of the earliest Christians understood this whole concept. The writer's trying to explain to Digenes how to figure out these Christians and what they're about. His explanation was quite interesting. He said it's, it's hard to actually distinguish the Christians because they don't have their own ethnicity. You find Christians in all different ethnic groups. And they don't have their own country. They're in a lot of different countries. And they don't have their own language. They speak the language of whatever country they happen to live in. He said, here's how you tell them apart. The Christians have children, but they don't expect them to die. The other thing is they have a common table. They'll share food with you, but they won't share their wives. <laughs> See, ever since then, Christians have understood that God has called us into his kingdom so that we may go out and bring his kingdom into our world. God's new world, it starts now in Jesus Christ. This week as I was studying this passage and thinking about the, uh, the concept of, of God's kingdom at hand, I kept coming back to this question, where do we ever get the idea that to follow Jesus, um, that you could separate the idea of following Jesus and not be on mission? Where do we separate the gospel of going to heaven from the gospel of going out into the world? Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll take you to heaven. <laughs> he said, follow me and I will send you out into the world. The good news isn't just about Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and mission. Jesus hasn't interrupted your life and my life and has called us to radically reorient our lives around him and his work in this world. Listen, he has called us to his kingdom so that we may do good for the world. Over the next six weeks, we're in this new sermon series called, called Doing Good. And we're going to talk about God's call. God's call for us to join him in doing good in our world. Um, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to wrap this all up by giving you three reasons why doing good is important. First one is because Doing good is what we are made for. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we read it earlier in our, in our um, service. Let me read it again. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What? Why? for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice here that we're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. <laughs> Do you remember the assignment that God gave the very first humans back in the garden? I mean, they were to harness the earth's raw potential. They were to cultivate the, the, the garden and make something good out of it there in Genesis chapter 1. 
they're to take care of the garden and, and take care of each other. Listen, that's our divine and sacred task. To use our God-given authority in this world to do good and to make a difference. <laughs> we were formed to do good from the very beginning of creation and we were transformed to do good when Christ forgave us and made us new. Second reason, because doing good is the work of the kingdom. See, Jesus didn't just announce the kingdom uh, had arrived. No, no, he went out and he lived it. He went out and, and he demonstrated it. I mean, think about what happened to each person that Jesus uh, came into contact with. I mean, he healed the sick and he fed the hungry and he touched the lonely and he, and he uh, blessed the children. He did good. When we do those things in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, when we do those things, we are being the hands and feet of God. Hands and feet of Jesus. Third, doing good is what the world is looking for. Again, quoting Todd Hunter, he said this, people today aren't asking if Christianity is true. They're asking if Christianity is good. People are tired of hearing us talk about good news. They want us to be good news to our communities and the world. Krista Smith is a doctoral student in psychology, and she's also a new mom. In some ways, her, her life is pretty limited. She's got to spend a lot of time in the library, and she is sleep-deprived. <laughs> How could God use what she's got as a way of bringing a new world? Well, if you're open and attentive, <laughs> he'll show you. He'll bring it to you. She was in the library uh, one day, and her daughter... Uh, Tegan, who was then four months old, was with her and was babbling away like a four-months-old would do. A man standing there in the library said to her, tell that kid to shut up or I will. All her mother bear qualities rose up within her. <laughs> and all of her psychological training rose up within her. And she said this, she said to the man, I'm very sorry for whatever occurred in your life that would cause you to be so disturbed by a happy baby. But I will, tell, I will not tell my baby to shut up, and I won't let you do it either. She thought he was going to rage on her, but instead he looked down, took a breath, and said, I apologize. Then he looked over at Tegan and got a little tear in his eye and said, I lost my son when he was two months old. Krista invited him to sit down and said, sit down and, and, and tell me about that. He said, well, he died of SIDS, and that was over 50 years ago, and I couldn't get over it. I was so angry about it, it broke up my marriage, and now I'm alone. She asked him questions about his son, and finally he looked over at Tegan, and he said, can I hold your daughter? When he held her for just a brief moment, he laid his cheek against her head, and he passed her back to her mom and simply said, thank you. Friends, God's kingdom is at hand. It's here. 
And he's interrupting your life, he's interrupting my life, and he's calling each one of us to his kingdom so that we may do good for the world. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your call for us to be about your kingdom work in this world in which we live. God, might you direct our paths. Might you, through your spirit, lead us on. Lead us in ways that we might impact and make a difference in this world because we are living under your kingdom rule. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.